0: listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Well, let's begin with prayer and we will um, dive in. I know I think the preacher was long-winded today, so we're a little behind. Um, So let's pray. Father, we're grateful that you've brought us together on this Lord's Day. What a privilege. We're just reminded, I'm reminded, what a what a privilege it is for us to gather together week in and week out in this place and to and to celebrate the good gifts, O oh Lord, that you have given us both in this world and most importantly in your son. And as we talk this morning a little bit about Hosea the prophet, I pray that you help me as a teacher to be clear and help those who are here to be encouraged and to gain some understanding of the character and nature of your ways with us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you have a pew Bible near you... Um, Grab it. I don't know what the page number is, but it's Hosea. So if you find the Psalms, uh, turn uh, right, um, and you'll get to it eventually. (laughs) And my, my apologies to those of you who were in my class down in the assembly hall Uh, We started this series and I got my calendar mixed up, so I missed the second class that we did on Hosea, Um, and so I'm I'm actually wanting to do that today. So for those of you who were with me down in the assembly hall where we talked about Hosea the prophet, I'm going to put the car in reverse just a little bit, Um, and and so that those folks who weren't with us down there can get, get caught up. And the nature of the series, and I think I'm probably, I think I'm starting again next Sunday down in the assembly hall. I'm going to continue on this series for a little bit of time. The nature of the series that we're in is just to raise the question about how God is presented to us in the prophets. And what's the nature of God's being? What's the nature of God's will and ways with his people? What does it look like for God to express his own a redemptive and creative being to his people throughout the pages of the prophets, recognizing that the prophets are challenged. They're hard, hard work. Um, uh, so we start, for those of you who are with me, we did Isaiah, well, I think probably way back in the beginning of February, maybe even January. And now I'm, we're turning to Hosea, the prophet and Hosea is an interesting book, right? So when you think about just from a simple structural standpoint, when you, again, hit the Psalms and turn right, and you begin to find yourself in the prophets, we, we see first off the, um, Isaiah the prophet. Um, I, was, I was writing, uh, we were uh, all day in baseball games yesterday. My oldest son had two games out in, in um, Odinville, which is really pretty out there by the way Um, so we were out in Odinville and then I had to take my youngest son back into town because I'm coaching a nine and ten year old team Um, and I'm going to whip those boys into shape we're going to have a winning season Uh, I'm I'm teasing we probably won't actually Um, but on our way back in it was very interesting I had Franklin with me in the front seat, and Franklin said all right dad I want to play a little game with you I said okay he said uh, tell me if you could choose to hear one of these people from the Bible preach, who would you want to hear? And he said, Paul. Uh, and then he listened. I said, well, I have to go with Paul. And then he said, well, what about the prophets? And I said, I don't know. That would be really, really hard. But so I'd like to hear Isaiah, but I wouldn't pass up the chance to hear Jeremiah. And uh, maybe just go watch Hosea's household at work just to see how that was all working out. Um, so Hosea is a challenging book here when you think about the way in which it's structured um, because it's, it's fit, situated for us right at the beginning of what's called the Minor Prophets. Um, and I, I'm not going to make an argument for this. I'm just going to suggest it to you. My own understanding is that Hosea the prophet has a signal position in the Minor Prophets, much like the book of Romans does for Paul in the New Testament. Now, not all interpreters go this route. Okay, you've got Jean Lett this morning. Someone else might give you a different spiel. But my spiel is... I really think the book of Romans from the Pauline collection is in the first position canonically in the order, because Romans is the lens, I think, by which we're meant to read all of the Pauline corpus. And I think Hosea finds his place here at the beginning of the minor prophets in much of the same way. Um, It's not given to us chronologically, because think about the minor prophets, Hosea, Joel, that's a weird book, um, and, and then Amos. And Amos and Hosea are both prophets to the northern kingdom. So think you have King Saul, who then uh, is, uh, um, uh, 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 King David follows him. And then you have King Solomon. So those three kings, Saul, David, Solomon, are the kings that are over what are called the united monarchy. This was when Israel, the northern kingdom, and the southern kingdom of Judah were one monarchical state. But after Solomon falls off the scene, you remember that Jeroboam goes to the north and Rehoboam stays in the south. These two offspring, well, Rehoboam is Solomon's son, Jeroboam takes over to the north. And all of a sudden, for the rest of time now, we have a division between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And it's interesting when you look at the minor prophets, if you go Hosea at least the first six, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, those six, the ways in which the prophets are presented to us is, think think this here, Hosea, prophet to the north, Joel, prophet to the south in Judah, Amos, prophet in the north, um, Obadiah, prophet in the south, Jonah north, and then back and forth. So you have this north, south, north, south, with all of these prophecies being collected in such a way that they are presented to us as really having a focus on what happens in the South and Jerusalem and Judah. But with that said, when you think about Hosea and Amos, both being prophets to the Northern kingdom, Amos is a good bit older than Hosea. They're, they're, they're contemporary on some level, chronologically speaking, but Amos is older. Um, so if you think about this, uh, if I can put it in our terms, when Hosea is going to his 10th year reunion from high school, Hosea is going to his 25th year reunion, Alright, So he, he, from our standpoint, he's, he's a good bit older, but notice Amos is not at the beginning. It's not given to us in that sort of strict chronological way. Hosea is given to us at the beginning because it's as if the, the, those who are collecting together the Bible and the shape in which we have it are letting us know this prophet here and the message that he's presenting is laying a kind of foundation for the rest of your journey through Joel all the way to Malachi. And to even try to prove the point further, if you look at the last verse, um, and I should have a, one of your Bibles so I can give you pew Bible members, but if you look at the last verse of Hosea, Chapter 14, verse 9, you have this verse here, which is central to the topic of our class together. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. Now, that's very important, that word there, know them. Because if you take my challenge to you to read the book of Hosea this week, if you take that challenge and sort of read Hosea through, you will find the language of know and knowledge riddled throughout the book. In fact, at various places throughout Hosea the prophet, Hosea is going to say, my people, they suffer for lack of knowledge of me. They do not know me. So so think about this even from a larger biblical theological framework. The, the knowledge of God resides somewhere near the center of what it means for us to be redeemed. Um, if I can use my, the language of my evangelical upbringing, what it means for us to be saved is to know God and to know him rightly. Think John seventeen three. this is eternal life that, you know, God, the father and his son, Jesus Christ, whom he sent. That is eternal life to have genuine saving knowledge, a recognition of who God is and who God is for us and for the world. So here's Hosea, the prophet telling us right out of the gate, listen, this book and the books that you're about to read are about you discerning and coming to understand and know who God is and the way in which God has revealed himself. And this is how Hosea ends this verse. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright will walk in them. But transgressors, they're going to stumble over the ways of God again and again and again. So here you have Hosea at the beginning of the book laying out for us, I think, a foundation in giving the people of God a portrayal of the relationship of God and his people. And he does so in one of those ways um, that actually is about as uncomfortable as we can imagine. He used, and this is one of the hard things about being a prophet. I was just in in one of my classes at Beeson this week. We're moving to the prophetic literature in this survey course that I teach at Beeson, our sort of foundational course. And, uh, And I said, you know, go and try to find somewhere in the Old Testament where a prophet is called by God to do something. And the prophet's response is, I can't wait. That's so exciting. I mean, you finally recognize my resume, you read my CV, I mean, you recognize that I'm the guy for the moment, and I, just just unleash me on the world, I'm ready to go. I mean, that, that never happens. I mean, what's the response? Moses at the burning bush, who's the paradigmatic prophet, eh, I'll pass. Right. Um, Gideon, eh, find somebody else. Uh, Jeremiah, mm, I'm too young, find somebody else. Oza- Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, how long do I have to do this? All right. Um, So it's 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 not it's it's a hard burden and you sense this in the Bible that these prophets are are normal men who have been seized um, by the call of God outside of the normal circumstances of their lives and the seizing that takes place is a is really the movement of the burden of the word of God onto their very person. So think about that. It's in Hosea, especially so. It's not just boy, it's so hard to, to prepare sermons. You know, got to go and study and research things and then crap. I no mean, oh, such. A, no, no, no. It's not merely that for these prophets. The prophets actually bear on their own bodies the word of God. There is a weight to it. I think about this when Paul, for example, I think it's in Second Corinthians ten, somewhere in there, where Paul says, "Let me let me give you a list of my troubles." Right here's my troubles. I got beaten, been shipwrecked, I uh, even got bit by a snake a few times. This is horrible. And but then, and so you go through this sort of litany of of, of 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 troubles that Paul has had, where he's proving, by the way, his apostolicity. He's like, you want me to give you my apostolic resume, my CV? Here it is. I've suffered the wounds of Jesus. That proves that I'm his. I'm his servant. And and, and it's so, so you move through this da 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 da, and his final one, which is so loaded, he says, "Not to mention all the care that I that, for the churches that I have, I'm, I'm burdened with the churches. I'm thinking about them all the time." And we see that same sort of full-bodied, embodied calling in the prophets. They bear on their own bodies and in what God calls them to be and do the heavy burden of the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord comes onto them like a burden and they bear that burden for the people of God. Think about that. The, the word of God is that which both saves and also that which judges. And the prophets bear the saving and the judging burden of the word of the Lord on their own bodies. And Hosea is exhibit A. So here the Lord comes to Hosea and he says, Hosea, um, verse two, when the Lord spoke to him, he says, go take to yourself. And I've got the ESV this morning. I think our pew Bibles are ESV as well. They keep this great King James version word. Um, so it's not a word that you use around, I lose you, around the Thanksgiving table. It's that word whoredom. Did you use that word this week at all? Whoredom. I, I kind of hope you didn't use that word this week. Sorry. Um, take to yourself a wife of whoredom and then have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by, and here's a key word, forsaking the Lord. Um, This is, uh, well, a little too pedestrian, but I'll put it to you this way. If if the prophets uh, sold t-shirts outside of the temple, I don't think they did. But if they had their little t-shirt cart, I think there would be a front and a back. And the front word would probably be the Hebrew word shuv, which means return to the Lord. And on the back of their shirt would be the Hebrew word, um, uh, I think it's zanah, which is here to forsake, do not forsake the Lord. If you read through the book of Jeremiah, you will find that word forsake over and over again. That is the reason why God is pouring out his judgment on his people because they have forsaken me. Jeremiah says this regularly. When they ask you, Jeremiah, why, are the, why is Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians coming to us? Why is this happening? You answer them and tell them because they have forsaken me. So here you have this which in effect is the breaking of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before you but me. They have forsaken me. And now God calls Hosea to do what? To go and to embody in his own person, symbolically, metaphorically, what's happened in the relationship between him and his people. And he's called to marry a wife of God. Whoredom. This is, again, one of those Hebrew words that's a little bit slippery and difficult for interpreters to navigate. And at sort of sort of basic semantic level. The word means something like adultery, um, unfidelity, uh, fornication. It doesn't necessarily mean um, uh, vocational prostitution. It doesn't necessarily mean that. Uh, but what it does mean is at some point in time, Hosea knows and has the knowledge that the wife he has called to take will in time become unfaithful to him and her unfaithfulness is meant to be symbolic for the whole of the people. And again, this is sort of, I, I felt this in the Genesis text. I feel it here in Hosea. We're really never given any insight into Hosea's psychological state. The, the Bible just doesn't do... We, we live in a kind of post-Freudian world where we tend to think in heavily sexualized terms. We think in heavily psychological terms. Um, but the Bible is often... I, I, it will give a psychological... Think about Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. But Hosea, we never get him, you know, a sort of insight into what life must have been like for Hosea. Now, it doesn't take hard work. We know it must have been awful. Uh, the, the public shame that comes along with this kind of calling... But the Bible's not interested in going down that particular road, I think, for a reason. Because Hosea chapters 1, 2, and 3 want to keep crystal clear before you the purpose of why God is doing this with Hosea. It's his symbolic action. This is what he's doing. And in what he's doing, he's called to model for the people of God what God sees in his relationship with them. Don't miss the symbolism of this. This isn't about, ultimately, Hosea and Gomer. This is about the Lord, and this is about Israel and his people. And so what happens? Well, as you move through this, you begin to see what happens. Um, God begins to pour out his judgment in the naming of these children. They have children. The first child is called Jezreel. Um, think the valley of Jezreel for those of you who are going to Israel this summer um, Jezreel was the location of a great coup that took place in the, in the uh, 8th century or actually in the 9th century and it was a place that God identified as a location of their rebellion so here um, Hosea has to name the first child uh, uh, Jezreel and then we get into some, some hard stuff here the Lord said to him, call the name of the second child, this is now a daughter, um, Loruchamah. So that was the name of the second child, which means no mercy. Again, these are, these are no you know, top list of children's names for the year 2020. Jezreel, uh, Loruchamah. And then you have another name here in verse 8, which says, when she had weaned, um, no mercy... She then conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name Lo-Ami. Which is translated in the ESV here, not my people. For you are not my people and I am not your God. So this is is hard hitting here in Hosea chapter 1. And the hard hitting character of Hosea chapter 1 is what? That God in his identity, in the way in which he has revealed himself to his people, it must be taken into account that God in his holiness and his otherness is severe and is, uh, does have the capability and, and the necessity within his being to judge his people for their sin. That's the hard swallow that we have to take when reading a book like Hosea. Now I will say this. We also have to take into account the enormous patience that God shows to his people, especially the northern kingdom, and the, and the amount of, if I can use our terminology, the amount of leash that he gives them um, to return. I mean, think about this. Think about this as an indication of God's love for his people in the northern kingdom. He sends Hosea. He sends Amos. He sends Elijah and Elisha. They go up into the northern kingdom as well, and they bring the word of the God. And when you bring the word of God, you bring the grace of God on offer as well. So the fact that the prophets actually exist in the northern kingdom is an indication that God, as a wounded lover, is going after his people and trying to woo them back to himself. Come back. Remember your covenant commitment to me. Don't forsake me for the other gods. Don't go whoring around, is really what Hosea is saying here. So there's an enormous amount of leash that God gives to his people. And and you may remember this, but Jeroboam, when the kingdoms get split and he goes to the northern kingdom, here's Job, first king of the northern kingdom. And what does he do? He sets up worship centers at Bethel and Dan. And do you remember what he institutes there? It's like, are you kidding me? Two golden calves. There we go. They build the calves again and now Dan and Bethel, they begin to worship foreign gods, breaking the very heart of the covenant that God has made with his people. What's at the heart of the covenant? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord alone. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, very, very much. And do not forsake me for other gods. And make sure, by the way, that you tell this to your children and to your children's children. And that they tell it to their children. Because God rescued us from the land of Egypt, taking us and making us his own bride. And what God wants from us at the very basic level, what God is jealous for, what he's zealous for, is our loyalty to him. Love the Lord your God. Be loyal to Him, to Him alone. I think this is so important, especially when reading the Old Testament, to recognize God is not looking from His people for moral perfection. God deals with sin. He deals with sin... Um, in a way that's righteous and holy, but he has a whole institution that's created for the forgiveness of sins. The whole sacrificial cult in the temple is given for the forgiveness of sins and the recognition of the moral pollution that sin brings into the community. God takes that very seriously, but at the core of what God requires from his people in the Old Testament is a very simple and basic feature. Love me and no other gods. Remember what Martin Luther said in his shorter catechism when giving a definition of um, the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me, which is, by the way, the basic commandment upon which all the others are built. And what does Martin Luther say? Both God and an idol can be defined in the same way. That which we put our confidence on and that which we attach our affections to. Where we put our confidence and where we lay our affections, that both makes a god and an idol. And God says, I want your confidence and I want your affection, me and me alone. So here you have the Northern kingdom right from the get go at Jeroboam, working down through the centuries. We're about 200, 150 years down the road here into Hosea. And do you remember how many good Kings there had been in the North who came in and said, Hey, let's remember the first commandment, God and God alone. Let's worship the Lord. Let's worship Jehovah. Let's get rid of all these idols that are infesting the land. Do you you know how many Kings did that in the Northern kingdom? goose egg not a one of them so here in time god's patience though he gives a leash it 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 uh it's pulled back and that's the moment that we have here let the people know that my wife has gone after other gods it's been unfaithful to me so that's the setup here that you have and here's what's so beautiful when you move through this relationship with hosea you get to chapter three And here's what I think is so profoundly moving about the prophets. The prophets tell us that when it comes to our moral rebellion against God, when we have forsaken God, right? And by the way, there aren't really sacrifices in the Old Testament for that kind of thing. Out and out rebellion against God and and pursuing other gods. What we see so beautifully demonstrated in the prophets is this is what God does in the face of the rebellion of his people. He pours out his judgment. Yes, he does. And then, and this is the language of Isaiah the prophet, he rolls up his sleeves. That's that's the image that Isaiah uses. God rolls up his sleeves and he bears his own holy arm. And this is what the prophet says. And he works salvation for them. He, he moves toward them in forgiveness and restitution and redemption and reconciliation. He makes that move on his own accord, propelled by nothing but his own self-determined love. Why am I going to move toward you again? My adulterous wife who seems to just pursue all kinds of other gods. Why? Because I can't help myself. Because I've committed myself to you in love. And even though you're not returning that toward me right now in covenantal fidelity, I am going to make my appeal to you and my move toward you in love because I've set my affection on you. That's what happens here in Hosea chapter 3. And the Lord said to me, go again and love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Can you feel the weight of that? Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel. That's how Hosea chapter 3 ends. It's some sort of fissure in the relationship between Hosea and Gomer. She's now living in infidelity with another man. And God says, you go tell her that you love her and that you're going to redeem her back and that you're going to buy her back off the auction block of her own slavery and enslavement and bring her back to yourself, Hosea. And when you do that, Hosea, you're going to demonstrate to my people the kind of love that I have for them. I'm willing to even go to the auction block of their own enslavement and buy them back again, even though they've been an adulterous wife. We see this, by the way, uh, throughout the prophets. Ezekiel 16 is another one of those texts that I think even in the Jewish tradition, you had to be over 30 years old before you were allowed to read Ezekiel 16. It's that loaded. Now, I'm similar to Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon is like, when you turn 30, I think you can handle it. All right, we'll toss this over to you. Um, and what's in Ezekiel 16? You have this incredibly beautiful portrayal of um, the Israelites where the prophet says, your father was a Hittite and your mother was a Canaanite. And they abandoned you in an act of infanticide and left you out in the middle of the desert to be consumed by the elements. That's what they did with babies that they didn't want in the ancient world. They left them in the wilderness and let the wild animals or the elements take care of the, the quote-unquote problem. It's horrific. And God says, and there you were left. And it's, I mean, again, very provocative the way in which Ezekiel describes this. You were left kicking and screaming in your own afterbirth. And I walked by you, says the Lord. And I said to you, live. I walked by you again and I said you, live. And here you see this beautiful portrayal of, in Ezekiel 16 where God takes this baby that had been abandoned, this baby girl that had been abandoned in the desert, and now she grows up into a young woman. And God says, and I poured out my affection on you. Now, I didn't just love you but I married you and doted on you and made you the, the queen of the ancient world in the moment. Think, think the pinnacle of the Solomonic era where even the queen of Sheba wanted to come up to see what all the fuss was about in Jerusalem. I made, you, I made you the jewel of the ancient Near Eastern world in that moment in time. And yet, and here's the next verse, and yet you forsook me and played the prostitute. And then it gets really punchy in Ezekiel 16 where the prophet says, and you weren't like a normal prostitute that gets paid for her services. You are so hell-bent on your idolatry and your forsaking of me for other gods. You are so hell-bent on it that you would pay your lovers to come into you. And then the prophet completely has the boxing gloves off and says, even Sodom and Gomorrah, look at what you're doing, and they blush. And how does Ezekiel 16 end? The same way Hosea 3 ends. But I have made an everlasting covenant with you, I will turn to you again in love. I will make you again my wife. This is the character of God. So again, we're in this season of Lent. The character of God that's portrayed here in the book of Hosea is that of a God who must be true to the holiness and the otherness of his own identity. He must be true to his justice and his righteousness. God cannot forsake himself. And yet, at the same time, God is hell-bent in his own person to love us to the end. I love those lines, by the way, in, in John's Gospel, where John says, And Jesus, having loved his own, loved them to the end. And that's what we see, I think, again, in this season of Lent, as we're moving toward Good Friday, is Hosea come to life in the person and work of Jesus. This is God demonstrating for us that he is holy and righteous and just in his otherness. In the beauty and the terrifying otherness of his holiness. He is that. And yet he also is one that is driven by his own self-commitment to love his people and draw them back to himself in acts of kindness and mercy and forgiveness. That's who God is. And how does he demonstrate that fully and completely? No other place than the cross. Because it's at that place where we see what? The mercy of God and the severity of God and the fullness of its display. And when you go back to the minor prophets and you go back to Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah, all of these prophets are kind of in effect saying, we we, we told you so. We let you know that this is the character of our God. One who is holy and just and righteous. And yet also who's one who gives himself to his people in love and forgiveness and reconciliation. Even when they are unable to move toward him, he makes the move toward them. So that's the portrayal that we have here, I think, in Hosea of Israel's God as as a scorned lover. And yet one who redeems and buys back his people ultimately and finally in his son. Let's pray. So Father, bless us as we go from this place. Thank you. Um, for the portrayal that you give us um, in scripture of your own identity, powerful as it is. Lord, we're grateful that you've bought us off the block and brought us into your own life. And all you ask from us, Lord, is the eyes of faith to look toward you and to be able to say by your grace that what you've done in Jesus is true and that it's true for us Help us to hold on to these promises, O Lord, knowing that you are a God like Hosea who pursues the ones that you love all the way to the end. Having loved your own, you love them to the very end. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.